How do you schedule new products? How do you specify new products? How do you, how do you specify manufacturing flows and processes? What is quality? My first years are, were boring by California standards, but I developed a set of, a set of values that have uh, been very important to me. I invented new technology. The technology was exotic. It was promising. And uh, I got courted by Intel, Advanced Micro Devices, and Fairchild. We got creamed. You know, we went five years and got decimated. So my first big business thing was getting wiped out. There are some times in business, you don't know if you're going to win or not. I had to um, build systems to make the stuff work that I wanted to work right so I could focus on the things that were differentiating, which was technology, which is what I liked anyway. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an exciting guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is actually a business hero of mine. He's someone who was one of the original pioneers in the semiconductor industry back in the early to mid-80s. He built his company, Cypress Semiconductor, to one of the leading semiconductor companies in the world. And... Um, Later on, he had a fabulous exit from that company, and he actually started a bunch of other high-tech companies as well as a winery. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary T.J. Rogers. Welcome to the show, T.J. Well, with an introduction like that, I, I feel like uh, quitting while I'm still ahead, but I hope I don't mess it up. Good to have you here, my friend. Really appreciate you taking the time. So, TJ, our listeners tend to be entrepreneurs. They're the men and women who've got the courage to go out there and go after their dreams. They are why I do what I do, because I'm a champion for freedom, free expression, and free enterprise. And they don't come here to listen to me because they hear from me every week. They come here because they want to listen to you as my guest. They want to learn from you. They want to be able to take some of that knowledge and apply it to their lives, apply it to their businesses. But before they can... Really open up to you. They got to get to know you a little bit. So tell us your backstory. How'd you get to be the great TJ Rogers? Well, um, I had an advantage. I was born in Wisconsin, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. So uh, my first years are, were boring by California standards, but I developed a set of, a set of values that have uh, been very important to me. And especially when you come to a place that's so different and full of smart people. Uh, when I was a kid, I actually had really good schools. I, I've always supported schools. I've always supported school choice. <clears throat> I look back, my grade school was um, K through nine was the grade school associated with the University of Wisconsin at Oshkosh. Sounds like so what, but Oshkosh was the teacher's college for the University of Wisconsin, which is like eight or nine schools. So every quarter, we little kids, fourth grade, would have six new teachers come in. They were all seniors. They were all doing their senior project. And all of my teachers were PhDs, 
when I was in grade school. Dr. Wow. Caudill, doc, you know, did right enough Dr. Naskowitz right up the line. So these teachers, these young people come in and they were getting their grade. The critic was sitting in the back of the room grading them. They had to hand in lessons and we got taught really well. I later went to Dartmouth uh, and I reflected on that school was to its peers as Dartmouth was to its peers, a really, really top-notch school. Okay, Oshkosh, um, they made their fortunes by woodwork. Uh, they built mills on the Fox River, which runs right through the middle of town. Uh, the the uh, science of Oshkosh, uh, you know, they had their country club and all of that Midwestern kind of stuff. But I learned very early that uh, if, if I wanted to matter, uh, in business, I had to run a company. So I, I left a high school kid. I left Oshkosh. Uh, and I, I even told my girlfriend uh, uh, that I was going to run a company by the time of 35. And there again, showing conservative Midwest judgment, not I'm going to go, I'm going to go and I'm going to learn about AI and start my company or drop out of school to start my company. I'm, when I'm 35, meaning I've been in a real company and I can understand how that works and learn from it. Uh, I went. I got into Dartmouth to play football. Um, uh, I didn't. Uh, a guy walked into my study hall. Uh, I never took homework home ever. That, that was another pride uh, matter, pride for, with me. And this guy's walking around my study hall, gray flannel pants, blue blazer, uh, rep stripe tie, white, uh, bluish Oxford cloth button-down shirt. Walks a buzz cut, and he walks over and says, "Are you T.J. Rogers?" And I go, "Yeah." Now this guy. In Oshkosh in 1966, looked like an alien, right? Everybody's wondering <laughs> who the hell this guy is. And he said, my name's Earl Hamilton. I'm the line coach from Dartmouth College. So uh, to show you where I, where I was at that time, I said, what's Dartmouth? And he said, well, Dartmouth's a liberal arts institution in Hanover, New Hampshire, uh, yada, yada. That, I won't tell the story. There's there's a lot of good stuff in it, but for, for, for an odd reason, I, I made it into the Ivy League. I would have gone to Wisconsin, uh, uh, UW-Madison. Uh, I went there, took chemistry, because I love chemistry. I still love chemistry. I read chemistry papers today. Um, I fell out of love with chemistry in my sophomore year for a decade or so, because I, I, I was memorizing chemical formulas and organic chemistry, and it, it didn't appeal to me. But I almost finished my chemistry degree, so I decided to put my head down and finish it. Then I went into my new love, physics. And I love physics because of quantum mechanics. I still love quantum mechanics. The, the last paper I read on quantum mechanics was yesterday. Wow. It, uh, it, was a, it was not a, a, a journal paper, but I, I still do do that. Uh, when I was a senior, I got out of love with physics because I had to, uh, uh, I was studying solid state physics and that wasn't doing anything for me either. And then uh, on a lark, I took one course in electrical engineering and Dartmouth was real good about letting you do what you wanted. There's a distributed requirement. And I took one course in electrical engineering, fell in love, one course. Wow. I had been accepted at nine schools. Um, I was going to go to Stanford in physics. I called him up and said, I want to be an electrical engineer, not a physicist. Would you please transfer my, my application, my acceptance, my money to, to the electrical engineering department? Of course, I could, I could just see the person on the other end slapping their leg going, oh, boy, this guy's really 
really doesn't know what he's doing. And they explained if I didn't come and matriculate in physics, I would lose everything. So I drove my car and my U-Haul with everything I had in it from New Hampshire to California. By the way, I picked California over, let's say, Princeton and, and Chicago and, and, and Harvard. I picked California because I was sure that when I got here, I'd be only a few miles from the beach. And I'd be able to get on the beach and <clears throat> watch surfing and listen to the Beach Boys. Of course, I didn't know you're in where I live. It, it, you need a wetsuit to go in the water here. It's, it's like 50 degrees. Um, came to Stanford, went into electrical engineering. Um, I had one course in my life, and it was really an applied laboratory course. It really, I didn't really learn double E principles. Uh, I had to hump to catch up. But I did get both degrees from Dartmouth. And in, in retrospect, they turned out to be real important for me. Um uh, the head of the electrical engineering department, specifically the integrated circuits group, Professor J.D. Mindel, secretary told me that Dr. Mindel wouldn't talk to me even until I'd already passed my PhD oral exams. And that was about three years out because I had to get my master's degree, then pass my oral exams. Then he would talk to me. So I gave her my resume and I did well in both physics and chemistry at Dartmouth. And the next morning, the great Dr. Mindel called me up. And uh, he wanted, uh, he wondered if I would come to work in his laboratory. And it turns out that laboratory made transistors. They didn't use them, they made them. And that's what my PhD is in, transistor physics. Wow. And you make transistors with chemistry, high temperature chemistry or plasma chemistry, typically exotic chemistry. You Say how they work with physics. You're dealing with solid state physics and, and equations of motion of, of electrons, for example. And then electrical engineering itself is about how to use those the, the, the transistors to make uh, chips. And of course, that's gotten more and more complicated. Now you have to be a full blown computer scientist to even comprehend what can be put on one chip. We're talking like 30 uh, PC quality or server quality machines on one chip today. Wow. Wow. So I, I, I live, yeah, I know, uh, I, I just wrote a paper uh, uh, that I give out to my startups and the title is Speed Kills. It's about 12 pages long and it describes how Intel uh, won the war and beat everybody in integrated circuits worldwide um, because of their time to market and their fetish with getting things done fast. It came from Andy Grove, uh, their CEO. Yeah. Okay, so I uh, went... Five years, I invented new technology. The technology was exotic. It was promising. And uh, I got courted by Intel, Advanced Micro Devices, and Fairchild. Fairchild was um, not the original, but yeah, exactly. So Noyce and Moore worked for Shockley Semiconductor. Shockley was the teacher of mine. I took two courses from him. Whoa. Um, yeah. He... <laughs> First day we walk in, right? There's six guys. They start out with 30 guys. We, we walk in and Shockley assigns us five books. So we get on and these are all physics textbooks that are that thick. These are things you read one or two pages or three pages a day. And you assign six of them and you assign chapter one in every book. So I come back to the second class and there's only six guys left and we all sit in the front row. And, and Shockley then says, you can take back five books. The book you need to keep is Electrons and Holes and Semiconductors, my book. That's the book we're going to use. 
I signed to all the other books to weed out the guys who weren't serious in the class. <laughs> and that took, that took out 30 out of 35 guys. So I learned, uh, he said, it's very simple. Simple, Shockley terms. We're going to solve the Schrodinger wave equation in a solid uh, periodic potential. Think about a lattice of silicon atoms that are positively charged particles. And we're going to solve for the allowable states in the solid. And then that will prove that, that silicon is a semiconductor. There's a valence band, a conduction band, and there's a forbidden gap. And you will, you will understand that. So we did that we, and, and related problems for two quarters. Uh, got out, got interviewed. I, I gave my first paper in Washington, D.C. at the International Electron Devices Conference. And there's a guy in the audience named Andy Grove, the Andy Grove. You know, it's like I once read a football story. I'm from Wisconsin, right? This guy from Yale got a call from Lombardi. And the guy said, I answered the phone and there's God on the other end of the phone. And he wanted me to come to Green Bay. So I had, I had Andy Grove call me up, tell me he wanted me to come over and, and interview. So I, I interviewed uh, with uh, several companies. I didn't go to Intel because Andy Grove was clearly a hard ass. And, and I valued academic freedom because I had my patents and I had an interesting technology. And by the way, my technology competed head on with Intel and it was different. Now, of course, if I told you the story, I had a technology that went against Moore's Law and I won, then you should push the off button on your computer right away. We got creamed. You know, we went five years and got decimated. So my first big business thing was getting wiped out. And I worked my ass off and I was and, and I did good work. But there are some times in business when you just it's lined up. It's like war. And you, you, don't, you don't know if you're going to win or not. So I, I worked five years at American Microsystems. That was my first company. And we tried to commercialize the technology five years and 17 days to be exact. It's the numbers etched in my brain. Wow. And then I didn't think AMI was a well-run company. So I, I decided to go to AMD, which at that time was run by Jerry Sanders, who was famous and still is famous in, in uh, Silicon Valley lore. And, and AMD and Intel you know, the battle between them over decades was kind of like the main event in Silicon Valley. And there I, I was there three years. I learned how to run a company and learned about marketing and sales as being important, not just technology. AMI was the other way around. Um, it was all technology and, and, and the business wasn't run that well. Um, I worked there for three years. We ran into the uh, late 70s. The Japanese were hammering the hell out of uh, the American semiconductor industry. Uh, we complained that we didn't have enough money and we needed subsidies. The same crap you're hearing today from our company, saw they need money from the government. Doesn't work, doesn't do anything, shouldn't have happened. Not then, not now. Yeah. Uh, Semitech uh, got funded by Congress. Uh, the plant, due to having to have somebody from everywhere and have the right state, uh, took a long time to get developed. And by the time the plant got developed, it was already obsolescent because Moore's Law obviously the technologies every two years. Never, never mattered, never mattered a bit. Um, okay, so I went, I went to AMD and I learned how to run a business. My business was static random access memories. These are very high speed memories that are right next to the compute, right next to the core. That is in a, in a, a chip, 
they'll they'll be on chip next to the CPU central processing unit, and they can respond. They you can read and write data to them every cycle. And any memory that's farther away, due to the type of memory and the distances away, will take more than once more than one cycle. So. All your computations are done from static RAM to CPU back to static RAM, and the answers are then fed out uh, into storage and other kinds of memory, eventually, you know, like a magnetic memory or disk or something like that. Uh, I gave up on trying to start a company. I, uh, at the end of AMI, uh, I picked some of the guys I worked with. We wrote a business plan. It was called uh, Integrated Device technologies um, and we were told because of our failure by Hambrick and Quist I always mention their name just to rub it in even <laughs> 30 years later we were told that uh, because of our failure with the Vimos technology the exotic technology invented at AMI that we couldn't um, we weren't fundable so that's when I gave up. I went to work at AMD. I learned a lot. I'm glad I went there. I still see Jerry Sanders today. He still lives in Southern California, still declares that Northern California is boring, and that's why he doesn't want to live here. <laughs> uh, wild guy. You know, uh, uh, lives in Bel Air, uh, used to commute uh, to work. Wow. And uh, I decided to start a company again, dusted off the business plan. It was still valid, and I took it out. And the companies I went to were Kleiner Perkins, specifically John Doerr, now the chairman of Kleiner Perkins and a good friend of mine, uh, uh, Sequoia Fund, which is famous, uh, Sand Hill Road, along with Kleiner Perkins. That connection was Pierre Lamond, who was the chief operating officer of National Semiconductor and, and a manufacturing guy par excellence. And, and then Seven Rosen, uh, my contact there was uh, LJ7, the chairman of Mostec. Uh, which was and the CEO of Mostec, which was at that time the seventh biggest uh, company in the United chip company in the United States, and responsible for inventing the dynamic RAM, which we call RAM. When you say my 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 computer has so many gigabytes of RAM, that's the RAM they're talking about. That's the one that's too slow, but you typically have ten to a hundred to a thousand times more bits of that than you do SRAM, which is static RAM, which tends to be more expensive. Yeah. Um, our deal was um, to, to use Moore's Law, which was known at that time. Moore's Law paper was published in 1965 uh, by Gordon Moore. And it was a very simple thing. It was a graph of the logarithm of memory size versus time. In a straight line in a semi-log graph <laughs> is exponential growth. So it showed exponential growth of the number of bits and a, and a doubling, uh, a, a factor of four, rather, every two years. And it, and the doubling of the number of transistors on a chip. And we invented a process at Cypress, the, the new company, uh, in, order to, uh, in order to put scaling Moore's Law to work in CMOS. And there were three companies in the world that did it. Hitachi, uh, Integrated Device Technology, our main competitor, but it has with them for a couple of decades in Cypress. And then eventually everybody did that because you had to because the other technologies sucked up so much power that you couldn't shrink them um, because when you started putting a billion transistors on a chip, they would have they would have been, you know, the, the drawing amperes of current. They do today tens of amperes of current and in, in, in frying themselves with power. So Cypress, I, I started 
in November of 1982, and I was CEO of that company until April of 2017. It's 34 years. Wow. And uh, th that's a record for semiconductors, even for technology companies, for longevity as a CEO. We went public in 1986. It took us 37 months from the time we got our first money till the time we went public. We were a big deal public offering. And at that time, quote, big deal, unquote, meant we raised 70 million bucks at a valuation of $270 million. I haven't got, of my six startups today, I've only got one. And these are these are young companies. They're not really public level companies. Uh, that, that that would be ranked number six out of seven with the numbers I just told you. Of course, you got a factor of three or four going for you on inflation, but uh, valuations have gone up. During the time I ran Cyprus, I didn't realize that chips were about the hardest thing to build. Uh, it's just just another problem. And uh, we we grew over the years to 7,500 people. Uh, when I left, uh, we were doing about $500 million a quarter, so $2 billion run rate. And uh, I focused, uh, as part of my makeup, on making the company run right in the areas that weren't critical in that they didn't differentiate you. For example, if you have a perfect financial report every quarter for 10 years with no errors, and you bring it out quickly, let's say two weeks after the end of the quarter, you get no points for that. It's one of those things needed to play. It's anti in poker. But if you screw it up, will be to you. They'll wipe you out. Your stock price will go down. The the lawyers out there, the plaintiff's bar will sue you. They'll call you a crook. So I had to um, build systems to make the stuff work that I wanted to work right so I could focus on the things that were differentiating, which was technology, which is what I liked anyway. And then I retired in um, August of 2016. Um invested in a couple companies and then I decided I was going to invest because a lot of people came to me and uh, I've, I've invested in about eight or nine companies, very, very different, almost all technology companies. And that's what I do today. And today I, I kind of remember the things I did at Cyprus to solve a given problem. How many stock do you give to somebody when they come on board? Do you, do you go to Compensia and ask them for a, a $5,000 estimate? Uh, or do you know yourself what's going on because you have a network? And then how do you value the stock? The stock's worth nothing when you give it to them. Well, it's going to be worth something in the future. So how do you make a valuation that's attractive, showing them what can happen, but not fraudulent where, you know, they say, you know, we've been waiting five years, stock's not trading publicly, and it's still not worth anything. Uh, so I, I, I had a system for that. And it, it, it didn't reflect uh, unique thinking. It reflected best practices that I saw in the industry, a way of thinking about it, and, 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 and multidimensional thinking. So, for example, on one side, you had to go to your board and convince them to give away a chunk of the company. That wasn't hard in Silicon Valley. It's much harder elsewhere. That's why Silicon Valley Silicon Valley. Yeah. And then I had to go to an individual. And I'll just... I'll just tell you that there's a lot of egos here in Silicon Valley and you got to no. go to somebody who's really good and really thinks he's worth a lot of money and you got to convince him that what you're giving is right and then you've got to bring it's just like bid and ask and when when the bid and ask get together there's a trade in the market 
Um, so I wrote, I wrote uh, some internal memos on how to do that. In effect, launching one of the business processes and human resources. I, I launched a bunch of them. Uh, the one I just tuned up the other day is called 10 Reasons, 10 Things to Do When a Valued Employee Quits. It was published in a couple of HR journals when I wrote it in 1997. Now I'm dealing with startups and they have to worry about losing people because there's a, still a, a, a seller's market here in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And I, I, this is a process, a business process, 10 steps, real work, not just go and, go and talk to somebody, but real steps you can do to turn people around. It has about a 50% effectiveness rate of turning people around to quit your company. And I did that in 1997 because uh, 1998 was a super hot year. And leading into that year, um, everybody had turnover. Our turnover was over 15%, which is fatal. You can't you can't endure that. And the process, plus some other things we did, plus the cooling down of the economy, got our turnover below five percent. And for the last decade and a half at Cyprus, I had four percent turnover and I didn't have to worry about it. So we brought in, collected um, really good people. So that that's what I do now. I um, tell war stories like the ones I just told you. I explain uh what that means for new entrepreneurs, hopefully in terms that they can relate to, because I'm talking real time about a problem they have right now. In particular, what do the time increments look like? What? How do you put in history, forecast, um, comparison to forecast, plan, comparison to plan, and then future forecast as differentiated from plan? How do you put that in a coherent document so you can talk to your board? Because most companies I work with, we'll talk about money and after an hour, you realize you're unhappy, you're listening to crap. They're saying the same thing, which is wrong for the fourth time. Um, so I, I, that's another one I wrote down. Uh, and I've got about 10 of them. I'm actually going to collect them up and put them into a book. So I think. You should. You should. Um, it's a great idea. Fantastic I wrote idea. one book. I, well, I wrote one. It was called No Excuses Management. I wrote it in 1992. Yeah. And it was a story of how I got Cyprus from zero to 100 million bucks and took it public. And a lot of the systems that I, I have are, in effect, fifth or sixth generation improvements of the systems in that book. That book, I, I looked at it the other day. You can still get it on eBay, and, and it, it it's worth it's worth reading. I'm going to order it. It's actually on Amazon. I, I, I looked it up before our interview. It's actually available right. on Amazon through a third-party sales uh, outfit. I think it's like 30 or 40 bucks so i'm 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 gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna invest i read about 100 books a year i'm i'm i'm, I'm crazy about reading books I've, I've written a few books myself as well i like to read i like to write so that's fantastic i will so i've written let's say 10 chapters on various things 10 things to do an evaluate employee quits uh, uh pnl management uh um uh, the one i just wrote on intel is called um, speed kills. And it talks about how startups who think they're fast and agile typically are not fast and agile, typically are bureaucratic and very slow when compared to a well-run uh, public company. And I go through I go through why it's imperative to uh, uh, have speed. I, I just finished a chapter uh, on the thing called the REC auction, REQ, as in requisition, as in human resources requisition, the document you get from your company authorizing you to hire and how the HR, the rec process in HR is a disaster. 
And there's a much better process that I call the rec auction, where these valuable pieces of paper are actually auctioned off, not for money, but to the vice president, who's got somebody good, ready to go, and hire them, and they get the rec. And the recs are only funded by turnover. So it's it's uh, it, it can you can rig the game to, to have growth or shrinkage. But they allow you to run a zero headcount company and have continuous improvement by hiring uh, new people. In in hiring new people, I, that one is probably one of the most um, impactful of all the things. Doesn't sound like it should be a big deal, but it is. How do you schedule new products? How do you specify new products? How do you how do you specify manufacturing flows and processes? What is quality? Um, <laughs> There is something the Silicon Valley's never had a clue on. There's a, a, we're a bunch of cowboys. I didn't know anything about quality until in, in about 1988, we were two years old. The Japanese pretty much were going to hammer us to death. My quality rate at Cyprus was 2,000 defects per million. And at that time, the Japanese were 200 defects per million. And Hewlett Packard, a customer of ours and also of Japan Inc. blew the whistle on American chip manufacturing, said we had crappy quality. Wow. So there, and everybody knows that the car company had the problem. We're we're inventors. We like to get it good enough, move on, do the next cool thing. And the idea of, of, of honing something down to defects per million is not in our blood. So in the end of my career, uh, I didn't do any of the sexy jobs. One of the phrases that I like to use was, uh, you know, I'm the CEO. What does that mean? Well, that means that I scrub the floors and wash out the to- wash the toilets. Yeah. What do you mean by that? And I said, well, there's crappy jobs that, that's hard to get good people into. Quality planning, strategic planning is another big module. And at the end, I realized those things were essential to survive and extremely important. And I couldn't get anybody to do them. So all the sexy jobs, I used the the uh, resume of the job to to um, description of the job to hire good people, and then I wash the floors. And and it's one of the things I tell the new CEOs. They come in and you know, I'm going to be power CEO. I'm going to do this, do that, and wheel deal, private jet, and all that. And I, yeah, you're you're not going to succeed. You know, look at WeWork. You know, guy bought himself a $65 million Gulfstream just before he got fired. That's not what it's about. It's about hard work, diligent work. And, and by the way, I, I told you I, I did. I played football only when you're in college. Yes. Because uh, I missed the Saturday course. We were playing at Harvard, and we had to travel. And I missed a physics and a chemistry course. Dartmouth in those days had Saturday courses. And I said, I'm not going to play football. But I'm not going to miss any courses ever again. So that was it. I finished my my freshman year, the fall term of my freshman year, and then I I, I left football. But there are a lot of analogies uh, to what's required to succeed in in that that game, and it's it's, it's athletic in general. Um, that that I that I also brought back and talk about. I love oh, that. and finally, one last thing, um, yes. culture. Um. I, I came to realize how important culture was in, it was about 1998, I was flying back from Japan, 1997 again. I was flying back from Japan and I had 
I always kept emergency papers in the bottom of my briefcase. So when I ran out of all my work and everything else to do, I had something I could work on. And down at the bottom was a paper by two professors from the Stanford Business School, uh, Collins and Porus. Jerry Porus and Jim Collins. Sure. Good to and, great. And the book. Well, no, no. Before Good to Great, this built to last. The first book they did was built to yeah, last. Built to last. That's right. And the company was called Organiza Organizational Vision and Visionary Organizations. And it was in the California Review. And it was I don't know, 17 pages long. And it did case studies on the effect of culture, good and bad, on companies with a lot of examples. This before they were famous. And then Good to Great was their second book. Yeah. And uh, I called them up and asked them if they'd help me. And they said, sure. So I had those guys consulting before they got famous. And, and therefore, the, the impact of culture on the company, the statement of core values of the corporation, the mission statement, how do you make a mission statement, what are the parts of it, the vision statement, um, all of those things um, were really important to me. And, and I was uh, the author of that. And I, I have uh, also... I haven't done that one yet because I did it so well at Cypress. I, I just kind of bring it out now, but eventually I'll have to rewrite it in the format of the other ones I've been discussing. So, TJ, there's a, a, a lot that you've shared, and I'd like to unpack a couple of things if you don't mind. Sure. So just incidentally, by the way, I have a good friend of mine who's a California-based businessman who's also originally from Wisconsin. And he, when he was on my show, he talked about how he grew up on a farm and, you know, had to get up before four in the morning to do what he did. Now, I live in Canada. I didn't realize Wisconsin was as cold as Canada, but apparently it is. Because <laughs> he would speak about how California was a wonderful change of scenery for him. His name is Ernest Emerson. He is the inventor of the tactical folding knife for the United States Navy SEALs. Back uh, in the 80s, a bunch of fellas came to him because he was known as a custom knife maker back then. He hadn't really exploded his business yet. And they said, hey, we're here. We hear you're a hell of a knife maker. We're some uh, underwater divers and we're looking for a knife that can work underwater. Do you think you could design one for us? And he said, OK, I think I can. So he went and he designed one. It, it needed to be rugged. It needed to be able to work underwater without rusting and all that jazz. And then they said, we haven't been fully honest with you. We're not underwater divers. We're actually United States Navy SEALs. And you're making a knife for us, a folding knife that we can use when we're on our missions, including underwater doing what we need to do. So he invented that knife. And that knife um, became very popular. The SEALs bought it. But then he brought it out to the general public. He, he was pretty smart about marketing and sales. And Another Wisconsin boy who built himself a, you know, pretty good sized company doing that. So there you go. Every time I get on the topic of Wisconsin, I talk about how lucky I was um, to get born there. Now, I still have the house I was born in and I have a couple of restaurants there, et cetera, et cetera. So I can go home. But then the other part is once you live here in California, after you've been in Oshkosh for two days, what do you do next? You know, it's 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 uh, it's it is it is different, more exciting out here if you're in my field, but couldn't be from a better place in terms of background. Yeah, that's what that's what Ernie says too. Ernie's a good dude. Uh, he's uh, 
God, I think he's 65, 66 years old, and he's he's still a, just a physical beast. You know, he, he works out like crazy. He teaches knife fighting to law enforcement and things like that. Uh, neat, neat fella. Um, and I think he's got a ranch in Colorado, too, that he operates. So they, there's Emerson Ranch, and uh, they, they they raise cattle there. And he's he started Emerson Coffee and Emerson Whiskey, too. So he's branched out of knife making into a whole bunch of other things. Really cool guy. But... Moving on, though, it's, it's interesting. Um, I'm not a whiskey guy. My dad was from Alabama. My dad met my mother, who was from Oshkosh, in World War II. And he, they, when they were mustering out of World War II, they were at the same camp, Coy, Northern Wisconsin. That's how they met. And he, he came up north. Uh, my dad was a bourbon guy from Alabama. I've never, never been a, a other than maybe tequila, I, 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 I'm not, a, I don't drink hard stuff. I drink, I drink wine, but I told you I own all technology companies except for one. The one I, I own a big chunk of is a bourbon whiskey company. Wow. And uh, I just moved them from California where they get no support, nothing but government hassle because they're in the sin business, I guess. And I, I just, uh, we're in the process of moving them to Lexington, Kentucky. And back to my chemistry, um, they have a process for taking white dog, which is the stuff that comes out of the still, yeah. <laughs> corn whiskey, at least 51% corn in order to be bourbon, and turning that into brown matured whiskey that wins awards. And I'm talking 200 awards in big distillation fairs, wins awards, and the maturation process takes four days. They're going to change the way spirits are made. And uh, that that's so that's my chemistry slash bourbon uh, slash not tech. Well, it is technology. I mean, it's some pretty high level chemistry involved in that. What's uh, the name of the company? It's called Bespoken. Bespoken. Good name. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, well, the idea is given you can make it in four days. And by the way, it, it's not chem lab. It's not like pour a bunch of chemicals together and it tastes like bourbon. It is take the exact ingredients that make bourbon, understand the chemical reactions that happen, for example, the protein, the grain, uh, reacting with the alcohols uh, in, in whiskey and multiple alcohols coming from uh, the proteins as they're, as they're uh, eaten up um, by, by the yeast. And then those reactions reacting with the barrel, and in case of the barrel, it's reacting with the things that come out of the wood in the barrel, and then react. They're not adders; they're they're actually integrated into the product. And once you understand all of that, uh, then you can speed up the process, put it all uh, put it all together, and and then speed it up so the natural reactions happen quickly. And the idea there is if you can do it in four days, you can make a custom bourbon for anybody who wants a custom bourbon. And they say, well, you know, I like a little bit of more of that, that honey aroma in there or, you know, uh, the wood in there is nice, but it's a little bit too much for me. Uh, then you can go change the recipe because they also control the wood. They have scientific uh, barrel. They don't use barrel staves. They, they take pieces of wood and put them in in the bourbon and they have scientific control of of the wood they use and how they how they char it or or roast it uh, and how much they use. So so it, it's it's down literally to a very precise recipe that creates bourbon. Now, I'm still not a big bourbon guy, but, <laughs> but a lot of guys love this stuff. I don't drink alcohol at all uh, myself, 
um, uh, when I was a young boy, uh, the men in my family, uh, a couple of them would drink and they were amazing men when they were sober. They were not so amazing when they were drunk. So at the age of eight, I took one look at one of them when he was not being so amazing. And I said, it's never going to be me. And I made a decision. I was never going to have a drink of alcohol. I never have. But um, I got to say, I'm fascinated by um, alcohol. I'm fascinated by wine, maybe because I don't drink it. I'm fascinated by whiskey. I like to smell it. So when my lady is having a glass of wine, I'll say, can I smell it? <laughs> and, it's, and people look at me and go, why don't you have a drink? I don't know. I just want to smell it. And I hand it back to her. And same with my friends when they're when they're sipping whiskey. But uh that's that's fascinating. So you and Ernie are both from Wisconsin and you're both in the whiskey, even though you don't drink it. I think that's quite the coincidence from my perspective. Well, Mike, uh, since you can edit this thing, I'm going to put this camera on and show you what I'm sitting in front of. Um, this is what I'm sitting in front of right now. Can you see out in the vineyard? Oh, God, yeah, it's beautiful. So that's my backyard. So the thing I am passionate about in the wine and spirits world is French Burgundy, which is Pinot Noir. And, and I have uh, three vineyards and two wineries, uh, and we make Pinot Noir. That That's a TJ business. It's not part of my venture business. Got it. Uh, I think it's fantastic. I, I read somewhere that you are probably the only man alive who has patents in high technology as well as winemaking. <laughs> and I think that's pretty crazy. I have, uh, yeah, patents on, on in winemaking, semiconductors. Um, in the winemaking, uh, it, it's a patent um, on on um, wine press. Wine press is a horrible, uh, expensive uh, thing, and uh, so I, I've I've got uh, my wine presses and my winery are handmade. All all my equipment's handmade. I have nothing that I bought off the shelf. Every tool, every fermenter, uh, wine press, all of that. It's all, you know, I buy barrels. I don't make barrels. But other than that, um, made all the equipment for the winery. That was my hobby from 1994 when I planted the vineyard you just saw uh, until 2006 when um, I decided it was, I was putting a lot of time into it. And it became work. And and for the same amount of work, I could do much more important things. So that's when uh, Valida took over. So she's, you know, the most famous champagne we joke is uh, Vouve Clicquot, the widow Clicquot. Yeah. So um, when her husband died, she inherited the champagne house, they assumed because she was a woman, that some man in the family would run the champagne business. They were major purveyors of champagne to Russia at that time. And um, she took over, and that's the orange label, uh, Vouv Clicquot. So I, I told uh, Valida she can name it Vouv, Vouv Rogers, uh, you know, and, and run the business. And she does run it, and she's a super taster, meaning that she's genetically different, like 30% of all humans, and she's got very sensitive taste and smell, and she's really good at making wine, better than I was. So, so the wine has actually improved and gotten better scores since she took it over. You know what? I'll have to reach out to her uh, uh, off camera. Uh, I like to give gifts, uh, unique gifts to my clients and uh, like to see if I can organize to uh, send some people some of your wine uh, and maybe include, uh, you know, a nice note with them. I think uh, that'd be pretty cool. A lot of my entrepreneur clients would get a kick out of that, I think. Um, she can do the wine. She also can um, 
the range for the bourbon. We make bourbon, rye, bourbon and rye are the two to the most and American light whiskey. We make and we make those three. Um, she can arrange for that. And that that is uh, the people that drink uh, hard spirits. They um, they they appreciate that one. I'll look into that with it for sure. Uh, I think that's great. You know, um, one of the things that uh, I believe makes for fantastic uh, relationships is sending people nice gifts, you know. Um, and uh, I've got, um, I interviewed um, last week the author of the book Giftology. His name is John Rulin, and he has created a whole business out of how to use gift giving as a strategic advantage in you know strengthening your relationships with your clients giftology is a fascinating book uh, I, i've read most of it i haven't completed it yet but in the interview he talked about how most people give gifts with corporate logos on them and he said that's a big no-no in his world he says nobody wants to see your darn logo on something he said but if you give a gift that's meaningful that's something that that you know the whole family can use that could be really, really cool, or, or even something that's just meaningful to the individual that you're sending him. So he said that what he does is he deals with an American um, uh, maker of kitchen knives called Cutco, and they make some really high-end knives with really nice, well-designed handles that a that a that a doctor uh, I, I don't know the exact um, term for that type of doctor, but that doctor who basically is a hand doctor. This doctor designed the handle so it fits perfectly in the palm of the average person's hand. And they they've taken these knives and they have inscribed them with scripture. They've inscribed them with something meaningful to um, you know their client or their client's spouse or their family and they send them out to those clients. So he he put together a package of basically $10,000 worth of kitchen knives, right? These are really high-end knives. Uh, and it included 50 pieces. And they were sending them to Tony Robbins, you know, the motivational uh, speaker, right? And what they did was the fellow who uh, was his partner in this says, no, 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 don't send Tony Robbins knives. I mean, he, he can get whatever he wants. The guy's the, the guy's rich. He doesn't need knives. He says, listen, am I the gift-giving expert or you're the gift-giving expert? He says, you are. He says, trust me on this. And what he did is he inscribed one of Tony's inspirational sayings on each of the 50 knives and cutlery mm -hmm. pieces, and he sent them to him. Tony's wife called him crying, saying this was the greatest gift they'd ever received. They were so happy. Three weeks later, this massive deal got done as a result of this, too. So I thought, wow, this is pretty, pretty cool stuff. I want to incorporate it more. We've always given gifts to clients, but I want to incorporate it more into the work that we do. And I'm looking for neat gift ideas. and. This sounds like it could be pretty cool. <laughs> so I'm excited to speak with uh, uh, Valeda offline and see if we can make something happen. I think it'd be great. Sure. Awesome. So um, the other thing that I really like about what you shared, and, and I'd like to, to delve into it just a little bit more, is you talked about these white papers, essentially, that you wrote that were about how to make aspects of running a business more effective. You know, the, the 10 things to do when a valued employee quits. I got to tell you, that thing could go viral today if you put it out there into the world because there's so many companies that are losing valued employees. I got a good friend of mine who lost, um, you know, one of his key people last week and he's calling me, you know, practically crying about it. Like he doesn't know how to, 
how to replace them because they're such a key part of the business. And this type of thing, I think, is super, super valuable. What made you decide to start thinking in this way and putting these, uh, you know, these important thoughts that you had in, in a written format so that you could use them and the companies you invest in could use them? Well, it, it goes back uh, when I ran Cyprus, uh, I always intended it to be my entire career till retirement. And if you don't count being on boards, that's a lot of work. But if, if you if you talk about full time employment, that was my career. So I always had a very long term view and we, we always had a flow of people. And toward the end, our HR philosophy came down to get the best college grads you can get. Uh, and bring them in and train them as opposed to, you know, bring in uh, stars from somewhere. It's the same as in football, right? You either draft and build through the draft or you, you uh, trade your draft choices away and, and, and hire known stars. So I, I hired, uh, we, we did the drafting thing. And then, of course, you're going to invest a lot in the people you want to keep them. So you start, and then, and then the first thing you do is you consider in quality language, when somebody leaves a defect. So the defect in quality is a failure to make the specification, a car that that um, doesn't stop safely, uh, an airbag in a car that blows shrapnel in your face when, when you have an accident. So you, if you consider, look, apply quality principles to HR, a defect is when somebody leaves. Okay, how do you handle defects? Well, you um, if even if you have you know, if you have uh, 5,000 people in a turnover rate of only 4%, that's still a chunk. That, that's 400 people a year. So you, you get graphs and, and, and you, you Pareto bars of uh, why people leave. And then that allows you to find root causes inside of your own company that, that, you know, obviously people put too much emphasis on it, but obviously salary is one of it. When you become uncompetitive in salary, then, then somebody who you know does want to live a little bit better, move to a new house, whatever, will have to consider going somewhere else, even if they like your place better. Um, so you, you look at all the reasons, and then you start changing your policies in order to prevent those reasons from happening and causing people to leave. And then if you, you do it for a, a, literally a couple decades, you you start recognizing patterns, long-term patterns. And, and then you can use you use them like judo. Like I remember National Semiconductor is a real hard-ass company. And once you announced that you were going to leave National Semiconductor, um, you got a really ugly response from management and typically were asked to put your crap in a cardboard box and exit immediately. Wow. So whenever we hired anybody from National, my advice, I, I, I'd be the last – I. For the first thousand people in the company, I talked to every one of them. And uh, my last advice to them was, look, if you want to get out of there and not get beat on for four days, then just tell them you're going to leave and you've made up your mind. So they go in, they tell them they're going to leave. Nash would say, put your crap in a cardboard box and I'd be waiting for them at the front door. Uh, so you actually can use the characteristics of the other company uh, to um, to fight against them. Wow. So it, it, it's about systems, how business systems work, and it includes in every case a quality loop where you evaluate what you're, for example, finances, forecasting. 
a defect in a forecast is when you make the forecast and you miss it by enough to harm the company. You missed your numbers too low, or you could have done better and you could have reported better, but you, you, you didn't. And then why'd you do that? So then you go back and you start working on your forecasting system. So I've worked a huge amount of time on forecasting. And, and at, at the end, and we used to have misses that were 10, 20%. You know, our stock would go down. And of course, then the minute the plaintiff's bar sees your stock has gone down, they sue you. <laughs> and they claim you're a crook and all of that, they have no idea what happened, but they, they claim that, and then they expect to get to, their game is simple. They sue you, they claim you're a crook, they figure that embarrasses you so much, you're willing to pay to get them to go away. They come and, and tell you how much you've got to pay to go away. You tell them to take a hike. I usually use more colorful language than that. And then uh, it, then they don't go away. So you, you find out what they, they have, you find out how it's used against you, and you simply don't do that anymore, even if even if it's okay and legal. So you you know, for example, you guard band a little bit more. You don't miss your your quarter ever. And, and at the end, um, our we felt like we had screwed up if our revenue for the quarter was more than two percent off of uh, what we had told the one quarter in advance. And we only talked one quarter in advance. You know, more than that in in a, in a world with probability working on you. It's like saying, well, I'm going to shoot the pool ball to the end of the table. It's going to come back, hit another ball. It's going to go to the end of the table, bank at a 45 degree angle and knock the eight ball in. Well, it ain't going to happen. You're not even going to, it's not going to show up where it's supposed to be. So you, you, you can, and you should give one quarter versus, uh, and you should be really accurate at it. And we got really accurate at it. That's amazing. But one thing I find, by the way, in startups, is they'll use salesforce.com and you'll say, what does your sales funnel look like? Oh, we use salesforce.com as if to say, we do it right and we have accurate things, uh, accurate forecasts because we use salesforce.com. Well, salesforce.com is the computer system. It has nothing embedded in it in, in terms of management and philosophy and, and execution. Um, so, you know, it's like saying, well, you, you screwed up your, your earnings well, we use we use uh, we use uh, Office by Microsoft, you know, or what? What's their spreadsheet? Excel. We use Excel. Well, so what? You know, garbage in, garbage out. So use a computer system, and and then really the art of doing uh, and semiconductors is obviously a buck and bronco. It's got calmer over the years. <laughs> the the art is to be able to take a pretty big hit, plus or minus, and still be able to react to it. And that, that's what I worked on. So then when I when I solved that, the first time I made one, just sort of one improvement, let's say, I'd write a memo. And and then that memo, like like if you look at my 10 things to do in a valued employee quiz, it got upgraded six times. And every time you learn something, you upgrade it. it and, you know, I, I, a lot of young people today don't write things down. And that's really bad. And that's one thing I really don't tolerate. You want to move up in a company and, and you tell me how smart you are and you don't need to write things down. And they go, did you take notes when you're in college, you know, like for the final? Well, of course. Well, why would you do anything less for my company uh, than you do for yourself in, in, a, in a college course? Obviously, you have to take notes because your own thinking will look alien to you in a year. And it'll look totally alien to you in five years. So it needs to be written down so other people can read it. They can add to it. Think about how the scientific community works. There's 
journals and there's papers and you read the papers and you add to knowledge and somebody who keeps up with all the papers in a given area is at the state of the art. And that's what you have to do in business. It's a very academic um, methodology uh, to run a business right. There are two of your papers that I'd love to be able to read. Uh, the one uh, called Speed Kills. I think that's fantastic. I mean, I'd, I'd love to, to see your thoughts on that. And the 10 things to do when a valued employee quits, man, I want to know what your thoughts are around that because that is such a big issue these days, TJ, you know, uh, and so many people are dealing with it that good thoughts on how to deal with that, I think are super, super valuable. And and, and I'm, I'm, I'll send you those two. I appreciate and that. The one, Thank you. The one you ought to read is uh, about the requisition auction, which sounds like a boring HR thing. It's transformative if once you understand... Once Please you understand what causes you not to hire well, hire people that you get rid of six months later or quit you six months later, hire people that, that are too expensive and don't pull their weight relative to the people you've already got and therefore piss off the people you've got and, and, and cause you know downstream effects. That paper uh, looks innocuous, but it's very potent. I'd love to and read that's it. what happens when the CEO decides he's going to wash the floor and clean the toilets. Because yeah. those are important things. Yeah, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Honestly, when you put that, when when you put them all together in a book, and the book comes out, I'll order the book. In fact, I'd love to order ten or twenty copies from you and get you to sign them, and I'll, I'll give them to all my friends and clients. I think they'd love it. Um, I think it's really, really important for people to uh, come and listen to smart people. The most valuable thing about you. Uh, and what you have to offer to the world right now, TJ, is that you you grew a company from scratch, you you built it, you made it successful, and you took the time to think through what allowed you to make it successful, and and you took notes. And I think that's that's genius. I, I think more entrepreneurs ought to do that. In fact, I'm going to call three of my clients right now. Well, not today, but this week, and I'm going to say, look. Are you writing these things that you're telling me you've learned down somewhere? Have you codified your knowledge? Because if you haven't done that, that's not very smart. You know, um, you've got to take what you're learning and you've got to codify it, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of the people that work for you. They're going to become more effective at their jobs if they know that the boss is passing on their learnings over to them. And quite frankly, at some point, these folks are going to retire too. And uh, they're going to be in a good position in life. And, you know, it'd be good for them to take some of these things, codify it in the form of some kind of a book and pass it on to the next generation of entrepreneurs. You know, I believe very strongly in free enterprise and capitalism. That's why I reached out to you, because I know that's something you believe in very strongly as well. And we need to strengthen the free enterprise system. I've got a vision and it may be a crazy vision, but I've got a vision that we're going to turn a billion people into multimillionaires over the next 25 years. Because if we have a billion millionaires, hashtag billion millionaires, as the kids say these days, we're gonna have a constituency for free enterprise that's so strong, that's so solid, that these crazy socialists, these crazy commies and fascists are never gonna be able to take it down. And to me, part of what's gonna make that happen is folks like you sharing their wisdom, coming on shows like mine and you know putting your knowledge together in the form of a book. It's great that you're doing it with the companies you've invested in, but I'd love to see the impact of that go to a million entrepreneurs and, and, and you know, 
uh, not yet entrepreneurs who are thinking about becoming entrepreneurs because that's what's going to allow them to be successful. That's what's going to put another million entrepreneurs into the mix. And you're going to be part of putting the, the brick and the edifice of the success of the free enterprise system. I agree with you. Um, I think one of the reasons that uh, the foolish spending in Washington today, the wasted money, is worse than it's ever been in my lifetime, mm -hmm. is not killing us, is that the, the wealth in the country is increasing pretty rapidly and the wealth per capita is increasing as well. And everybody focuses on percent change top to bottom, which is really not the issue. Uh, when I make an extra buck, I don't drink another bottle of wine or buy another car. I invest it. And and that's good for the economy. It's My track record is, is that it's good for the economy. And I, I think um, our increase in wealth uh, in the country is, is a byproduct of, of our freedom and our Constitution. Yes. And... You're absolutely right. When when that takes hold, uh, instead of uh, encouraging people to talk about what's wrong, how I got screwed, um, they'll talk about people that succeed and say, "I want to do that." Th that's what I did. You know, I, I I come from a midwestern town, and I saw I, I analyzed why pe certain people are successful and others aren't. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and you put that to good use and you're somebody who put your, your considerable intellectual firepower to good use to build yourself a great company, but you've also helped other people do it as well. Um, TJ, I'd love to send you, um, some of my books that I've written. If, if you allow me to send you that gift, that'd be great. Love to, uh, love to have you, uh, examine some of my thoughts. I'm grateful that you're going to send me some of your thoughts. I'm going to buy your No Excuses Management book from Amazon Canada <laughs> today when I get off uh, this interview with you. It, it, it's been a real honor to have you on the show. I have one last question I want to ask you before we get to the wrap-up phase of the interview, and that's I'd love to hear your thoughts on AI and what you think that means for the economy and for society going forward. It's going to happen. Um, and, and even though it's going to make many people uncomfortable, um, in our society, they're not going to be able to prevent it. And like right now, you look at this backlash against high tech and supposedly we're all getting screwed by Google and, and all, all the companies. I don't feel screwed by any of them. Um, so AI is going to happen. It's going to be a tool. It's not a human. Therefore, the really subtle important things aren't going to get done by it. But what it will be able to do for us is do a lot of crappy jobs that a human shouldn't be doing anyway. Uh, if you think think about um, why people get turned off at working, is that if they have a lousy job, their creativity isn't tapped at all. And and they're, they're just kind of working because they have to. Um, if those jobs can get done by machines, then that'll liberate people. And, and certainly it's not, you know, of course, every time there's a machine, think about the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. You know, the word saboteur, sabot, is a, a French word for the clog. And the saboteur is the one who threw the wooden shoe into the, into the weaving, uh, into the mill, the, the, the um, weaving machine, and destroyed it. Because oh, wow. after all, you're 
taking away all those all those really good weaving jobs that everybody wanted. You know, it's like it's like everybody talking about the, the uh, Mexicans taking away our jobs, right? Hmm. But I I got I got thirty employees uh, in my vineyard, and and they're almost all from Mexico. So uh, the jobs the jobs that AI will take away will be the jobs that it can do, and the jobs it can do um, will liberate humans to do higher level things. So I, I think I think it'll be positive. Um, it'll add new level of crime, right? You'll now, if you look at the net, the way it works is you do a thousand things and have 0.1% yield and get one score. And that's one chunk of revenue for you. So if you can do a million things, that's a thousand thousand and you can get a thousand people coming in. So it's able to do many, many things and then have a tiny yield and still have a, a the yield still yield uh, uh, something that matters in numbers. So and that's how criminals work, right? So you've got some stunt and you'll be able to try it autopilot on more people. Um, so, you know, it, it, humans are humans and all of our failings will come through in a new technology. I'm not interested in it. Um, I'm not interested in it because the things I can do, it can't do for me. And I've, I, I, I'm not a computer guy. I, I'm a computer hardware guy. I built a lot of computers in my career. I program computers, but I got to tell you, I'm not a software guy. I, I just don't, I don't like it. I had a project at Stanford once where in our software class in double E, I had to interface a keyboard to a Hewlett Packard mini computer. And the language was assembly language. So assembly language means you are moving bits around into registers and across buses. And it's the least efficient language that there is. I hated it. At Dartmouth, uh, I worked on some one of the first higher level languages, um, BASIC. And, and that was back in 1966. They had freshmen at Dartmouth College programming computers. Um, but ain't a software guy. Yeah. Um, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts. Uh, I, um, I'm trying to wrap my head around this, to tell you the truth right now and figure out what it means for society as a whole and what it means for us in terms of how we do what we do. Uh, a fellow who um, interviewed me on his podcast uh, and as part of an, uh, an organization I run for men um, put together a, an ad, uh, an audio ad, and it was entirely generated by AI. And I couldn't tell, mm -hmm. I couldn't tell until he told me. And I'm like, wow, that was fascinating. And he said that what he's going to do inside his podcasting is he's going to automate, like you said, a whole bunch of tasks that he used to have to do himself. And he's excited that this AI is going to save him five hours a week. I'm like, okay, good for you. You're saving five hours a week. That's amazing. Yep. Uh, you know, and, and I think that's fantastic. I, I want to see if there's, there's things that AI can help us do. That'll be valuable and useful. I've gone on uh, this chat GPT and I've uh, played around with it and asked it to answer certain questions and do certain things for me. Um, I'm Persian. I'm, I'm, I'm originally from Iran and you, you, you know, Persians have a, uh, 
uh, a reputation for being good poets. And I'm actually a, a, a decent poet. I, I I won my lady's heart by writing her a love poem a day for 30 days. And I put it together in a booklet with some pictures of her and I, and I gave it to her. And, you know, the rest is history, as they say. So I just said, you know what? Let me see if this will write a love poem. And then I'll write it. I'll have it write it and I'll send it to her. So I had chat GPT write me a love poem. And I sent it to my lady and she says, oh my God, sweetheart, that's so beautiful. It's so great. And I said, sweetheart, I have a confession to make. This is one I didn't write myself. <laughs> AI wrote this for me. And she's like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Wow. If a lot of guys could win a lot of brownie points using this by putting things together and sending it to their wives and girlfriends. And I thought, yeah, that, that seems pretty interesting. That seems pretty neat. But I'm, I'd like to see if there's a way to utilize it for you know smaller business folks like myself that could be valuable from a business point of view and that's why I'm I'm glad you shared your thoughts with me so thank you very much well think think about take quickbooks so quickbooks is the way a small person can start keeping financial records in a acceptable uh, double book double entry format if you combine quickbook with uh, a ai all of a sudden you can have an interface where the spoken word can transmit data into the system and the AI can put it in the right spot and start creating first pass of financial statements. I, I, this country burns a huge amount of time if you consider the financial statements of corporations and the tax returns of individuals, a huge amount of time on that stuff. And uh, that'll be a big step forward, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, TJ, we like to end off each episode by asking you as our guest expert to give us what we call your top three expert action steps. These are basically your best three pieces of advice that you would want to impart to my listener, things they can take action on pretty much right away. So what say you? Uh, take the trouble with your team to sit down and write down what you're trying to get done carefully. And that would mean every sentence would be carefully considered. What are you trying to do? Uh, the, the object of the sentence is, is a singular compound. What are you trying to get done? Um, and then ask yourself if what you've written down uh, and, and your actions are consistent or are you doing actions that move you? You know, if you talk about north is the way the company wants to move. A lot of what you do is moves you east and west. Some of what you do moves you south. And you can you can compare your actions against against your aspirations. Yeah. Um, on quality, we all know about quality as something about products. I bought some that doesn't work, um, etc. But product quality has been well studied and and it's gotten better. I mean, if you look at the products we have today, they're they're, they're outstanding. But quality to me is a way of life. And if you look at in Japan and look at the background of quality, uh, the corporations that really uh, brought quality to the fore, and that would be, you know, Toyota and the semiconductor companies in Japan primarily. Um, it goes back to samurai days and the philosophy of life. And to me, um, quality is a way of life. It's your your basic values and what you do. So it, it's about what you write. It's about how you think. It's about how you interact with other people. And I'm actually finding with the companies that although product quality is a killer, 
if you make something that breaks, your customers are going to you're going to die. Um, the interaction internal and quality, considering things inside the company as uh, products. I'm writing a memo. Um, I'm giving a speech. Um, they, they, those actions can have quality or not have quality. So that would be number two. Number three, um, you don't usually have to say it to entrepreneurs, but um, we don't work as hard as we used to and have a sense of excellence. The quality that goes back to my prior that we used to. And, and just remember that um, effort matters. And, and working hard, going the extra mile, uh, really will pay off for entrepreneurs. Now, sometimes they do it. They, you know, if you think about it, when you take six people and start a company and say, we're going to wipe out General Electric or IBM or whatever, um, you've automatically got an overload situation where you're going to, you're going to be on the wrong end of having to work every, every hour for the rest of your life. But, but a lot of them won't, you know, going back to my analogy earlier, won't wash the floors and clean the toilets. And, and, and they will have things that, that are low quality, that are evident to their, all the outsiders, the stakeholders, as they're now called of the company, and they're not addressed. And the minute you see that, you say, okay, this is a startup. These guys aren't mature yet. Um, so the effort required to do things right uh, needs to be there. And it's, uh, I, I see effort declining. Uh, if you go look, uh, I was on the board of Dartmouth for tw uh, eight years. And if you go look at the number of hours students study, there, there are that track that. That's going down. Um, I, I told you, you know, when I was there, we had classes on Saturday. Yeah. And, you know, the, the big deal becoming a, a, a sophomore was mostly freshmen suffered the Saturday classes. And, and you, you know, you then could, you know, only, only do five days a week. Um, so effort uh, would be the third thing uh, that I talk about. I really like all three of them. I like the last one the best. I just finished reading today uh, a book by um, David Goggins called Never Finished. Do you know who David Goggins is? No. So he's a... Uh, uh, He's a black man who uh, was a Navy SEAL, and um, he he went through three hell weeks to actually make it and become a SEAL. And once he finished and he retired as a SEAL, he decided that he was going to go out and continue that hard-edged uh, state of mind and, and apply it to his life ongoingly. He was going to have that SEAL mentality going forward, so he started to do ultra marathons and then he became a pararescue um uh person you know where they go out there and they rescue people that have uh, been badly injured and crashes and things like that and he just became a uh a wildfire firefighter in british columbia even though he's uh, you know massively best-selling author and he does speeches for two hundred thousand dollars a pop he decided that no he wanted to challenge himself and and harden himself by going and qualifying for becoming a wildfire firefighter. Now, most of the people that do that are in their early to mid twenties. He did it at 47, you know, mm. and his um, very inspiring man, very, very inspiring man. I highly recommend his books. Uh, he 
talks about how we're living in a soft culture. We're living in an age where everybody's becoming softer. And, you know, I'm a student of history. Uh, I studied history in, in, in university. I, I went to the University of Toronto, and then I got my master's degree at Georgetown University. And uh, I studied cold, cold War history and Cold War politics, but I've studied ancient history too. And it looks like we're going through something that's happened throughout human history, you know, um, where you've got hard times and they create strong men. And those strong men create good times. And then good times create weak men. And the weak men create hard times. We're in what they call the fourth turning, where there's a bunch of weak men in charge right now. And they're creating hard times for us. And there's a whole soft culture. And if you look at the United States today, it's eerily reminiscent of ancient Rome just before it fell and was sacked by the barbarians. You know, And I think your message about effort is very, very important. I have two teenage sons, one's 17, the other one's about to turn 15, and I do everything in my power to push them and not be a soft parent. My older boy, well, he did something teenage boys do, and he lied and he got caught, and uh, his mom and I decided he was going to be consequenced. And there was a bunch of other boys involved, okay? And we said, well, we're going to consequence. We're going to take his phone away from him for a month. He's not allowed to go see his friends. He goes to school. He comes home. He does homework. And he's a soccer player, so he goes to soccer practice. And the other parents said, well, we're going to do it for six months. Well, we kept our word. We did it for a month. And, you know, he couldn't see his friends. He's just now two months in being allowed to start to see his friends. What I found out was that the other parents caved within two weeks. Within two weeks, they came. I mean, yeah, yeah. Are you kidding me? Look at the kind of message you're sending your sons. You're teaching them that they can get away with crap. That is not a good message because life doesn't work that way. You can't get away with anything in life. You do stupid stuff in real life. Life's going to come and bite you in the butt. And, you know, if they're working a job and they do something like this, they're going to get fired. And it's, there's going to be a black mark on their record. It's going to be very difficult for them to, to get rehired anywhere good. And, you know, my son, I'll tell you, it's been tough, TJ, with my 17-year-old. Like, he was ticked. He wasn't talking to his mom. You know, I had to, like, really straighten him out and talk to him more than once. Um, but I talked to him just yesterday. And, and, you know, we do this thing, my sons and I, when we're in the car, we're driving to go do something. I took him knife shopping. I'm, I'm a knife collector. I'm crazy about knives. And that's how come I got to know Ernie Emerson, because, you know, I bought his knives. And I thought, hey, I got a podcast. Let me ask him if he wants to come on. He said, Sure. So um, when I took them shopping, I asked both the boys what they like about each other. Like, what do they respect about each other? And I said, what do you like about your dad? What do you respect about your dad? And my eldest son said something that actually made me feel good. He said, dad, you piss me off because, you know, you don't let me get away with anything. But I know that what you're doing is making me harder and stronger and more capable of succeeding out in the world. And for that, I appreciate it. And I got to tell you, that made me proud. And I think yeah. every father ought to be able to say that to his sons. And, uh, you know, every mother ought to be able to say something similar to her daughters and vice versa, you know, fathers to daughters and mothers to sons that, that makes them understand that effort is required because we're raising a generation of people who don't believe in effort, think think things should come to them instantly, think they should be a CEO or a gazillionaire within three weeks of getting out there in the world. And that's just not how life works. So I just want to say, I really love this interview. It was been fantastic in oh so many ways. 
But buddy, you brought it. You brought it hard with the very last thing you said. So God bless you for that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right. So um, TJ, uh, if folks want to find out about your vineyard or anything else uh, that you would like to have them check out about you, what's the best way? Uh, TJ, TJR, TJRogers.com. Rogers has got a D in it. Real simple. And I, I um, don't promise and don't actually respond to everything, but um, I've never, let me put it this way. I've never seen a good idea where a guy said, I got a pitch for a great idea. You want to look at it that I haven't looked at it. And about half my companies don't come up from structured venture work. Uh, they come from working with people like the bourbon company that have an idea. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I think that's, that's super califragilistic, man. That's terrific. God bless you. God bless you for being a champion of freedom and free enterprise. Uh, I wish more folks in Silicon Valley these days uh, <laughs> bought into that ethos the way that you have. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's very inspiring and I'm, I'm really grateful that you came on the show. Thank you again. Thank you. All right. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible guest, the one and only TJ Rogers, go to the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com. And if you liked what you heard, leave us a rating, leave us a like, leave us a review, and share it with somebody who needs to hear this message. Until next time, goodbye. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.